So I got a few quick announcements for you guys. Same stuff as always. Uh, we got small groups going on. Uh, Dave has his small group at his house on Wednesdays at 6. Uh, Ryan Rolf normally has his small group um, at his house at 6.30 on Wednesdays, but he's actually having it on Friday this week. So if you have any questions or want to get involved with that, get a hold of him. Um, Chris Jones, the guy in the back with the hat on backwards, there he is. Um, he has a small group at my house, the Revolution House, 706 Campbell Avenue, um, at 8 p.m. on Fridays. Um, you guys are all more than welcome to come out to that. Um, sorry, Dave's doing something. Um, <laughs> why did they give me a microphone? <laughs> all right, um, so we have cookouts on um, the third Friday of every month and trash pickup on the second Friday of every month, so if you guys would like to get involved with that, get a hold of me, get a hold of Steve, um, or Allie and AJ. Um, also, I think Autumn still needs nursery volunteers, is that right? Yes. So if you want to volunteer in the nursery, find Autumn. She's here in the front, in the very middle. Um, so I'll go ahead and pray and we'll get started. How's that? All right, cool. Um, Father God, we thank you for this time that you've given us to, to come together, to worship together, to learn more about your word. We ask you that this time of fellowship that we have is, is beneficial to us and brings the most glory possible to you. Uh, I ask you to be with Dave tonight as he delivers the message, be with the worship team as they lead your people in worship, um, and, and all of these things I pray in Christ's name, amen. What's up, Revolution? Do it again. That was weak. What's up, Revolution? That is what I'm talking about. There's the most adorable child in the world right here. This is baby Dave. He's not mine. There's another guy here named Dave. That's his dad. Hey, baby. Anyway. Anyway. I don't... Nah, I can't handle this right now, man. I appreciate it. You might want to snag him, though, for real. Yeah, okay, cool. All right. Well, dude, I love that there are kids here because we're trying to teach them just as much. That's why we got the thing going on in the back. Um, the other rooms for the kids is awesome. I love having babies in the church. Um, not literally, but having children here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, have you ever come into some information and you're just absolutely dumbfounded by it? Like, you're still trying to process what's happened, and you're still trying to fully understand uh, what you've just been told, or what you've just read, or what you've just found out, Um, but you know that, like, nothing is ever going to be the same, ever. Um, Some of you probably think that I'm referring to the Supreme Court ruling from Friday, but I'm not. I'm talking about something much more important. I'm talking about Little Debbie Cakes. Um, (laughs) Some of you may think that that joke was in poor taste, but you've never tasted a Little Debbie Cake. Um, that was a pun for you guys. Uh, my dad's a little Debbie salesman. I had to do it. Um, but I, I told, I, I, I'm, I'm joking about the Supreme Court ruling a little bit. It was a serious thing. Um, but I just want you to know the reason why I'm trying to be light about it, because I know a lot of you are expecting me to say something about it. And we're going to talk a little bit more later uh, about how we're supposed to respond in that. But I, I want you guys to know something, and that's that we're going to be all right. Like Christians are going to be fine. Um, I think one of the reasons why that Christians in general have been kind of freaking out over the Supreme Court ruling that um, like all states have to recognize um, homosexual civil unions as marriage, I think that the reason why Christians are freaking out is because in the, the first time ever in American history, um, 
Christians are starting to experience what it feels like to be the minority group. And what's funny about that is that's been the case in most countries since the beginning of Christianity. It's what we see in North Korea. It's what we see in China. It's what we see in a ton of different countries right now. But this is the first time that we've ever experienced it. So we freak out and the world's coming to an end. And the rapture's going to happen in two seconds if you believe in that kind of thing. People have been saying that whenever JFK became president and all kinds of other stuff. So we know that, like, that's probably, not that it can't happen. Like, Christ can return any moment. But, like, probably not because of what the Supreme Court did. Um, just throwing that out there to you guys. Um, like I said, believers have dealt with this for centuries, but I want, what I want you guys to know and what I want all Christians to know is that Christians are still going to stand firmly on Scripture. Um, we're still going to affirm what the Bible teaches as marriage between one man and one woman. We're still going to affirm what the Bible calls sin, which is practicing homosexuality, in addition to a plethora of other things that we all suck at. Just for some reasons, we pick that one out more than others because not all of us struggle with it. Um, but we're still going to stand on what the Bible says about all of those things. But above everything, we will still love people. We're still going to love people. Um, it just might be a little bit more difficult for us to be Christians. Um, That doesn't mean that we're going to affirm sin or any of that. We're still going to stand on what Scripture says, but we're still going to love people. But what I want you guys to know, uh, before we go any further, is Jesus Christ himself said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Quit freaking out. (laughs) Quit posting crap on Facebook. This is the end. All right, stop doing that. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, so we're going to be all right. It just might get more difficult for us, but Jesus says expect difficulty, so stop being stupid and read your Bibles. I know it sounds like I'm being rude, whatever. Um, Anyway, welcome to revolution. Um, (laughs) But back to the more pressing issue at hand, Little Debbie Cakes, like I was saying. Hit me with the slide, baby. We got it? Come on. No? You didn't do it? Whatever, man, that sucks. Have you guys seen the, the picture of a fat little Debbie? It says little diabetes. <laughs> or uh, the picture of Will Ferrell drawing a little Debbie cake box from where he dressed up on Jimmy Fallon. No one? You guys should Google that when you get home. I was dying. My dad was rolling. He's a little Debbie salesman. He loved that. Um, but the reason why I say, like, this information that I found out about little Debbie cakes that changed everything about my life, and I couldn't fully comprehend it at the time, was uh, I had never looked at nutrition facts before in my life. I was, I was like 19 years old, and I weighed almost 300 pounds at the time, which I'm not saying 300 pounds is big for everyone, but that's big for me. Um, and I had never looked at anything. Growing up 20 years in a convenience store almost, never looked at nutrition facts. Just like, those don't apply to me. I'm a superhuman. Um, and then like I was having like back problems and couldn't hardly walk. Um, <laughs> but I looked on the back, and I love Little Debbie pies, like the apple pies and the chocolate pies. Oh, like if you can lust after a food, that's the one. But anyway, there's 420 calories in one of those things. Yeah, that's a fifth of what you can eat for the day. That's all. And I could eat like five of them in addition to all the other crap that I ate for the day. So like this is really bad news for me. But this information hit me really hard when I was first trying to lose weight. And I didn't eat like any Little Debbie cakes for like almost three years. Thank God that's over. Um, but like, but what, what I'm getting at, the reason why I said all that, <laughs> Dad just amen me. <laughs> so... What I'm getting at is I was living one way, and then I discovered some new info, and I processed it, and it affected my desires. I didn't want that anymore. Um, I I wanted to pursue healthier food, and then my actions and my life changed around this new information that hit me to my core, and I understood. Um, And if you've been at Revolution for like more than two weeks, you can probably see where I'm going with this this evening. Um, The gospel. 
right, that Jesus Christ died in our place for our sin, even though we have so rebelled against him and broken his law and broken his commands and tried to be our own God, that he would die as a substitute in our place to satisfy the wrath of God that was on us in spite of the fact that we've rebelled against him because he loved us so much. If we believe that and we understand that and it hits us at our core, the gospel should do something uh, similar to what Little Debbie information did to me, but on just a much deeper level. Um, it should change everything about us. And I know that I probably sound like a broken record because uh, I'm always hitting the same concept of response and gratitude. If you understand the gospel, your actions should change and your life should change because you have gratitude for Christ. I know I sound like a broken record, but that's because here at Rev, um, we don't believe in slavish obedience. We don't. Um, we are not for white-knuckled, begrudging obedience. Like, yeah, Lord, I guess I'll do it. I don't want to do it. Like, that's not what we're about here at Revolution. Um, God says that he wants our hearts. And when we are changed at the core uh, by the gospel, then God gets our hearts. And when he gets our hearts, our obedience will follow because we will desire him. We will pursue him. So that's where we're at this evening. We're, we're going to talk about obedience to God. Um, and that's what Paul is going to call us to in this passage um, that we're in. So tonight we're in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Um, there are Bibles out there if you want to use them, but I know it's super dark and you're not going to be able to read them out there. So it's going to be on the projector. Um, and if you're new here and the Bible that you have is hard to understand or you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. Take it. Um, but we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. And we're really going to hang out uh, a lot in verses 12 and 13 this easy. So we're going to, or this evening. So we're going to open them up. And, and we're going to see why Paul says what he says. Um, so let's check this out. And, and let's let the Holy Spirit uh, work in our hearts to produce affection for God. Um, so that we would love and obey him more and more with true passion for him because of what he's done for us. All right. And just also, verse 12 that I'm using this evening comes from the English Standard Version. And then we're going to switch back to the New Living Translation. So the wording might be a little bit weird um, from what you're used to. But starting out in verse 12, let's go ahead and hit it. Let's hit the text. Paul writes, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life. Then, on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share your joy. All right, so the first thing that I want to point out that Paul says is he says, beloved. Right, Therefore, beloved. He is, he's saying that he really loves these people, right? And, and, and he's, he's, he's said this a lot of different times throughout this letter so far. He loves the Philippian church. He has a special connection with the church in Philippi. It was the first church that he ever planted. He has a lot of passion um, that goes way beyond just a regular pastor congregation. He actually cares about these people, which is how all pastor congregation relationships should be. Um, so he tells them, I love you. You are my beloved. You are my brothers and my sisters. And he says that because I, I think he's getting ready to give an extremely strongly worded command, all right? Um, th this um, seek out your own salvation, work out your own soul salvation with fear and trembling has a tons of 
has tons of force. It's hard stuff. We cannot dumb it down at all. And I love you guys. And that's why I wanted to point this out. So I want you guys to hear me this evening. And I don't want you to be discouraged. Um, I want you to be convicted if this hits you. That's good. Um, But I want you to be encouraged uh, because we serve a God full of grace. And whenever we fail, he is faithful to us. And he wants us to come back to him and get up and continue following him. No matter how much that we mess up or how short that we fall. And he says, get up and keep following me. So be encouraged by that because some of this is going to be maybe hard hitting for you. Um, But Paul says, you have always obeyed God. That's the next thing he says. You have always obeyed God. They were partners in the gospel, the Philippians were. He calls them earlier in the letter, that they were giving of their resources. They had given Paul a gift while he was in prison, sent people to minister to him. They were loving one another, although there was a couple of qualms and fights going on, and Paul's trying to sort that out. But they were generally, habitually loving each other, loving Paul. They were telling people the gospel. They were living in holiness. They were killing sin in their lives, and they're walking in obedience to Jesus. And Paul's saying, I saw this when I was with you, whenever I started this church, um, and I hear this while I'm away. I I can see the fruit of your salvation. And in light of that, I'm going to implore you to do something. He says, keep working out your salvation. All right, now I don't know about you guys, but I grew up thinking that this verse meant, um, like, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Like, this is going to be true for you and not for me, right? Like, someone sees someone chewing snuff, and they're like, I don't think it's a sin. Well, you work out your own soul salvation, brother. You're probably going to go to hell. Um, You know, (laughs) Like, and don't get me wrong, there are some things that can be a sin for one person and not be a sin for another if the Bible is not black and white. And that comes from Romans chapter 14, not from here. So it's like the right theology, but like the wrong scripture, which you see all the time in churches around here, <laughs> right? Like where two or three are gathered in his name, that means two or three people constitute, like, no, it doesn't. It means like where two or three people agree about church discipline, Jesus agrees with them as well. Anyway, there's a little aside for you guys in case you didn't know that, so whatever. Um, but that's not what Paul means. Like, it's true for you, but not for me. It's not what Paul's getting at here. Paul, what Paul's saying is, keep working hard to show the results of salvation. Um, keep producing evidence. He's saying, this, and he says, continue working, right? The, the wording in, in work out is to continue work. This is continuous with no breaks, that we must strive for holiness. We must push for obedience now and forever as we've done in the past. That's what he's saying to the Philippians. But Why? Why is he saying this? Now, the very first word Paul said in verse 12 is, therefore, beloved. So, therefore. Now, therefore means because, generally. And I learned this from Dustin Cooley, and this has never ceased to make me laugh every time I read the Bible. Whenever you see the word therefore, you have to find out what the therefore is there for. Mm, It's like Mr. Rogers does preaching. It's so good, isn't it? Oh, thank you for that, Dustin. Ah, oh, so good, right? So what, what is the therefore, therefore? What is Paul referring to? Um, he's referring to what he just said, what we talked about last week. So I'm gonna just read those um, six verses to you right now. So this is the because, okay? So it's because of this that we should be living in obedience, um, showing our salvation. He says, talking about Jesus, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest or place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, so just like 
We had Jesus last week. We talked about humility, that Jesus was our example for humility. We also have Jesus as our model for obedience. All right, and just fun fact for you. Jesus is the model for everything. Like every single thing. That's what it means to follow Jesus. There was an old Jewish uh, phrase that said, be covered in the dust of your rabbi. That means whatever he does, you do. You're following him so closely that as he walks down the dirt road, he's kicking dust up all over you because however he eats is how you eat. Whatever attitudes he has is what you have. However he thinks is how you think. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. That's what it means to follow Jesus. So Christ is our model for humility and obedience is what we're looking at. And verse 8 said, Christ humbled himself in obedience to God. And he did it daily, right? He humbled himself in obedience to the Father. Um, whatever the Father said he, he wanted to do, um, he died for us in obedience to the Father because it was the Father's great plan to crush Jesus in our place because he wanted to show us mercy and still have justice done. He, Jesus submitted to the Father's will. Right? Christ was and is unwavering and carrying out the will of God. This is the example of Christ to us. This is the therefore. And another therefore in verse 9 was given to us as well. It says, God has given Jesus the highest honor because of his obedience and death on a cross for us, that Jesus is Lord. He's been given the title Lord. And because of that, because Jesus is Lord, we should understand who Christ is better. This all ties into obedience. We should understand who Christ is better, that he is God. He has all power. He is omni-omni, right? Omniscient, omnipresent, everything. He has all power in the universe. He is also the authority, right? He is the one who gives the commands. He's the one who gives the law, and his very word is law. And he is love because God is love. He is our Savior. Right? He loved us undes- undeservedly. We, we deserve hell, and yet he would show us love anyway. Right? And, and, and I think that we have to understand who Christ is better as God, as Lord, as the authority, because often I think that we, we view Jesus uh, as some good teacher with some good things that we should do, but he's mainly a hippie. Right? They walk around in Birkenstocks and a tie-dye robe or something. Like That's how we tend to view Jesus, but that's not what Paul says he is. Paul says Jesus Christ is Lord. If he's the Lord of everything, then what are you, right? So if we understand Christ better, we should understand ourselves better, right? And I would, I would pose this to you. We can only truly know ourselves if we know God. Um, God is holy. He is perfect. That makes us, it holds this awful mirror up to us. And shows us that, well, if he's holy and he's perfect, I'm definitely a sinner. I I transgress. I disobey his command. That if God is the authority, if Christ is the authority, then I can't be the authority in my life. Jesus is the one who has say over what I do and how I feel and how I think. And that if Jesus is God, then he deserves all glory. And because I'm a sinner, I deserve nothing but hell and punishment and the wrath of him. And yet, he's love. He has showered us with undeserved grace. Even in spite of our rebellion, he loved us and wants to save us. All of that should, say, should just absolutely change our hearts. If we really understand who Jesus is, that he is Lord, who we are, how much punishment that we deserve, how we spit in his face daily whenever we disobey him, and yet he still died for us. That should change everything. And if we're Christians, if we acknowledge that Christ is Lord, 
and we have been loved so greatly by him that we should, in gratitude, obey Jesus. And when, that's, that's what proclaiming that Jesus is Lord means, to, to obey him over everything, to the glory of God the Father, in order to show the world his great value to us. That's what it means to bow the knee to him and show the world that he is Lord. Because, and we do this because of who he is, just by being God and what he's done for us as our Savior. And I think that's why Paul says, therefore, work out your own salvation. This doesn't mean, as well, I just want to throw this out to you. This does not mean work to make your salvation or produce or bring about your salvation. That's just stupid, right? That's absolutely impossible for us to do. You cannot undo your sin, right? It's like I always use this analogy because it makes me laugh personally. If I kill somebody and then go do 100,000 hours of community service, I'm still guilty of murder, right? That's not justice. I can't, do on the, I can't undo the fact that I killed somebody. I still deserve the death penalty, That's how it is. You can't undo your past sin. You cannot save yourself. You cannot work enough to save yourself. You cannot obey God enough to save yourself. Faith in Christ is the only thing that saves. Believing that he took your punishment in your place is the only thing that will save you. But Paul is saying, if you really believe that, express the change. Work it out. Like literally, like outwork it. (laughs) I don't know how else to say it. Like work it out. I feel like I want to say twerk it out for some reason. Like usher that was stupid. That's on the podcast now. Um, what Paul is saying is, have you been broken by your sin? Do you understand what it costs to save you? Then express it. Hate sin. Put it to death. Have you come to love God for what he's done for you? Then express it. Obey him. Right? This is what the Bible means whenever it talks about being born again in, in John chapter 3. Um, that our rebellious hearts right? Because that's what we're born into. We're born into a sin nature that's completely rebellious against God, that our rebellious hearts have been broken and transformed so much by the love that God has shown to us in Christ that now our desire is to do what pleases God, when before obedience wasn't appealing at all, right? Like, and this is the simplest, dumbest way that I can explain this to you guys at all. Um, if, if you woke up tomorrow morning and were a cat, who doesn't want this, right? Who doesn't want this? I dream about this, right? You would pursue mice. <laughs> this is so stupid. You would do cat things, right? You would be, and here's where the biblical language comes in, you would be a completely different creature with different desires and different urges. You're not the same thing that you were the day before. That's what being born again means. Your desires and your urges have changed. And I get that. That's really stupid, but it got the point across. Right? And if you guys saw the things that I cycled through to make that point before I arrived at the cat, you would give me some more credit here because like, I think up dumb stuff day in, day out. All right? But you'll remember that. <laughs> I guarantee you'll remember that. David's talking about cats. Um, but why fear and trembling? Why does Paul tell us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling? Right? This kind of sounds like scare tactics, and I'm not a fan of that guy that like, tries to scare people into becoming a Christian. I'm not that guy, and that's not the case here, thank God. Whenever Paul says fear and trembling, a better translation is reverence and respect. It, it, it's all Standing in awe of God. And again, what that means to stand in awe of God is to come to better terms with who God is. That he is perfect and holy. That he is sinless. That he is just. And because he's just, he hates sin. That he's omni-omni. He's above us. Omniscient, omnipresent, um, omnipotent. He's above us. He's smarter than us. He's more powerful than us. And because of knowing who he is, coming to better terms with who we are, that we are rebellious sinners with absolutely no righteousness in need of mercy and grace. 
That is standing in awe of God. Respecting who he is. Being so captivated by God and what, or, and, and that he would love us that we are compelled to obey him and show the evidence of how he has changed us. That's what it means to stand in awe of God. That's what Paul is, is imploring us to do here. All right, we, we should have these feelings and be working out our faith. We should be expressing the change um, that has caused us to so love God. And the question I asked was, well, why is that so important? And Paul gives us a really good reason for why we should be doing this in verse 13. He says, because it is God himself who is at work in you. That once we become Christians, that God puts this indwelling Holy Spirit in us, the third person of the Trinity puts him in us, and that he pushes us and, and gives us the desire and compels us toward obedience. Right, so this isn't just Paul telling us to muster up from your own will more obedience. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that God himself is the one who is changing us and working in us to produce obedience and the desire to obey. And here's the kicker to that. God effectively works. God does not try. His work is effective. Right? Jesus didn't try to raise Lazarus from the dead. He raised him from the dead. Jesus, God didn't try to win wars for Israel in the Old Testament. He won them. Like, God is always effective in his work. So if he's begun a good work in us, like Paul talked about in Philippians 1.6, if he's begun a good work in us and the Spirit is in us, then we should have evidence of our faith. And this tells me that if we are not habitually walking in obedience, and I don't mean perfectly because everyone sins. Anyone who says that they don't sin is a liar. You can check the book of 1 John on that. You're a liar and the truth is not in you if you say that you don't sin. But if we are not walking habitually in obedience, displaying the evidence of what God has done in us, then I must deduce this, that God must not be working in us to give us the desire or the power to do what pleases him. If we don't even care or desire to please God, and we're not even attempting to kill sin or to walk in obedience, then we have not been born again and we are still dead in our sins and under the wrath of God. It's that easy. God is effective. The gospel must have just not taken root in us if that's how we live. We must not truly believe what we say we believe if we are not attempting to walk in obedience. And if that's where you find yourself, no matter how long you've claimed to be a Christian or how long you've went to church or whatever, don't fool yourself. And, and, and don't just try to obey harder from your own will. What you, what you should do, if this is you, you should get down on your face and pray that God would make your dead heart alive so that you would find him and his gospel more beautiful than anything else in the world and that God would make the gospel real to you, not just a story or some facts to assent to. Apart from this kind of heart transformation that, that makes us people who actually love God, then we have no hope. And whatever obedience we can muster up is merely skin deep and it does not please God because God wants your heart. But hear me out. Hear me out. I know that may be harsh for some of you, whatever. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that you don't have faith. Um, if that's you, uh, but maybe you don't. That's between you and the Lord. I'm just telling you what the Bible says about that. Um, you know, maybe, maybe you're a believer. Um, maybe you're truly a believer out there and you need your heart broken again by the gospel. 
I know that that's me a lot. I need my heart broken all the time about the gospel whenever I find myself in disobedience to God. Pray for that. That's a good God-honoring thing. That brings him glory. He will answer that with yes. He will break your heart again. Pray for it. Right? We all have to be constantly reflecting on where we're at spiritually. And truthfully, our desires and our affections, what we, what we strive for, are the best place for us to look. So check yourself. All right, but then here's the other one. Uh, but, but what if you have the desire to obey, but you're just not obeying, right? Like you feel like you just can't. Like I literally can't even. Yeah, white women in here just cringed a little bit, but that's okay. You know, whatever. I literally can't even. I love those videos. All right, then if that's you, where you're like, okay, I, I want to obey, but I just, I, I can't. I can't get over this one sin. I can't forgive this person. I can't let this go. Whatever it is, then I would pose this to you if that's your situation. When we feel that way, what we're actually doing is denying the power of God in our lives. Verse 13 said, it is God who works in you and he works effectively. We're denying, we're denying the power of God in our lives. Paul says this in Romans, just to further my point. The Spirit of God, right? The Spirit that lives in all believers, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Therefore, because the Spirit lives in you, the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead, therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. Whenever we say, I can't let this go, or I can't quit this sin, or I can't stop whatever. If you're a Christian, you're denying the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Consider this. It is the same spirit in believers that raised Christ from the dead. It is the same spirit that empowered Christ to perform miracles, to feed multitudes of people, to raise people from the dead, to heal the blind, to heal the lame, all that. The same Holy Spirit who made you alive in Christ and opened your eyes to the gospel. The single greatest miracle that you will ever witness is is you or someone else coming to faith in Jesus. The same spirit who did all of those things lives in you. And do you now think that this spirit is too weak to empower you to forgive, to give up porn, to live in sexual purity, to serve others, to share the gospel, to please God in general? That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make sense. Now, I I know that this isn't always easy. Right, to walk in obedience. It rarely is. I'm not trying to be an idiot. I'm not Joel Osteen. Christian life is just awesome. No, like, it's awesome, but like, it sucks sometimes. It can get hard. It's hard to walk in step with the gospel. Um, but what we need to do is we need to understand something. Disciple, being a disciple, equals discipline. Right? And, and, and play on words, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> right? But a disciple should be disciplined. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. So Paul's saying we have to, as much as it's God working in us, he still gives us a human responsibility to strive for obedience. Right? And obedience is still going to feel unnatural on some level. Um, but it's what matters, right? And what, what distinguishes a believer from someone who just claims to be a Christian is where we actually attempt to bring ourselves under the reign of Jesus. That's what proves our salvation. We, we're proving that his work is stronger than our desires, our flesh, because he has caused us to love him more than we love ourselves. We desire him over every other desire that we may have. 
That's why Paul says that we're to stand in awe and reverence of who God is. Um, whenever we're standing in awe, of re- of awe and reverence of God, this gives us perspective. When we reflect on the cross, right, this awe of God brings us in plain view, puts the cross in plain view of us, that I'm a wretched sinner, and yet God loved me in spite of me. And Paul knows that it's impossible to rebel and sin against God when you're standing in awe and respect of his hatred for sin. I say this sometimes, but it bears repeating. God hated sin so much that in order to forgive us for our sin, he had to kill his son. That's how much God hates sin. That's how just that he is. And that's also how much that he wanted to show us mercy. That he was willing to do that. And we stand in awe of his unfailing love to us, even whenever we're not faithful to him, that he would still call us his children in spite of our failures. It is impossible to rebel against God when we understand the fatherly love of God given to us undeservedly, that he would call us his children whenever he could and should have righteously and justly condemned us to hell. He had every right to do that, but that's not what brought him pleasure. He wanted to save us. Paul knows that it's impossible to rebel whenever we're living that way, in in awe of God. And when we're walking in this kind of God-induced, heart-transformed obedience, we're going to be in step with the rest of the things that Paul told us to do in this passage we read earlier. He tells us, don't complain or argue. That could be a whole sermon in and of itself. That one stings, doesn't it? Um, and, and, And we don't complain and we don't argue whenever we're standing in awe of God's forgiveness. We won't argue with one another. We won't hold grudges. We won't fight with one another whenever we think of, man, how much has God forgiven me of in the last 30 minutes? How can I hold a grudge against this person? How can I argue with this person? I should love them in the same way that I've been loved. And and to complain about our situation, right? Standing in awe of God's sovereignty over all things, that whatever we go through, God has said, yeah, you're going to go through that, and I'm going to receive glory, and you're going to be made more like my son through it. It's really hard to complain about your situations whenever you're recognizing God's sovereignty and standing in awe of it. Paul also tells us to live innocent, pure, and blameless lives, to live above reproach where no one has a legitimate claim or qualm against us. And we're only going to live that way whenever we stand in awe of God's hatred of sin, in awe of his holiness, and we desire to imitate that because we want to be like him and we want to put sin to death in our lives. That's whenever we're going to live innocent, blameless lives. This is whenever we're standing in awe of that. And then Paul tells us to hold fast or to hold out the word of life. And we hold fast to the word of life whenever we reflect on the faithfulness of God. That even whenever I sin, he's faithful to me and I want to reflect that same faithfulness back to him because I have love for him because he has loved me first. And whenever we stand in awe of Jesus' lordship and the fact that he gives us the great commission to go out and tell people the gospel, then we're going to hold out the word of life to people whenever we're standing in awe of the lordship of Christ. So there's just some examples of what happens. And, And Paul also says that whenever we're living this way, that we are by default acting as lights in the world that we're going to shine brightly whenever we live in awe and reverence of who God is, we're going to shine brightly in contrast to the darkness around us, right? Working out our salvation makes us stand out to the crooked world around us that has no awe and no respect for God. And as they see us in our lives giving testimony to God and as we hold out the word of life, the gospel that Christ is crucified for sinners and raised from the dead, then we're pointing them to God the Father and his good news, 
Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. And just a little aside, I said we were gonna talk about the Supreme Court thing again. Um, your ears just all perked up if any of you were asleep. It gets weird, in it? Um, I think the greatest way uh, for us to be a light right now is for us to love people relentlessly. That's the biggest way that we're going to shine in the world right now. And what I mean by that, so don't, don't get it twisted. I'm not a, I'm not a liberal Christian. I don't, do those exist? I, whatever. Um, my theology is, is completely conservative, right? I'm as orthodox as they get. Um, but love people. Loving people doesn't mean affirming sin. Loving, loving people doesn't mean contradicting what the Bible says. Um, loving people doesn't mean redefining marriage. Loving people doesn't mean any of that. Loving people means I don't hate you. I want you to know Jesus. I want to help you. I want to be there with you. I don't think you're less of a human being than I am. You were made in the image and likeness of God just like I was, and you have inherent worth, and I love you because of that. That's what it means to love people. And just further, and this is, I get annoyed with this. Why do Christians expect people who don't love and don't respect and don't stand in the awe of God to live like they do? That's stupid. It's like expecting football players to play by the rules of baseball. It's stupid. It makes no sense. But we love people. We don't treat them like they're less than us. In this world where tolerance has been so redefined that if you disagree with me, then that means you're a bigot. And if you disagree with me, then that means that you hate me. We can shine out as a light that says, no, no, I disagree with you, but I still value you as a person. I, 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 I don't agree with your opinion. I don't agree with your views, but I still love you. That's something that we're probably not going to see from non-believers. That's what's going to make us shine out and, and be different towards people. Is that we wouldn't repay hateful words with hateful words. We wouldn't post stupid crap on Facebook that's bigoted and makes people feel about that tall. The gospel itself is offensive enough. Don't be offensive yourself. Love people. Paul says if we have not love, we're just making noise. That we're just adding to the noise of the world and that we are nothing without love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says we are nothing without love, period. And if you want to cut through the noise of the world that's hateful, Love people. That'll cut through all that sound like nothing you've ever seen. Extend grace to people. Stand true to the word, but speak the truth in love. But when we're living faithfully to God, which is loving God, loving others, all of God's commands are summed up in those things. Love God, love other people. Paul says that we are like priests, that we're offering sacrifice to God with our lives. Because we're standing in all of him, because we're bowing the knee to the lordship of Christ, because we're giving him the praise that he is due, this pleases God. And our desire is to find joy in God and to do what delights him. So to sum all this up, Christian obedience isn't just slave obedience. It's, it's, it's not slavish. It's coming in line with the gospel. It's coming in line with who God is, who we are, and, and, and how he has loved us. And then in the only legitimate response left to that love, we thankfully and lovingly bow to Jesus as Lord over everything. 
Christian obedience is offering a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to God for the miracle of salvation that he has worked in us. And therefore, we should gladly give up or begin whatever it is that God demands us to do or abstain from, from a thankful heart. This kind of living is in complete opposition to liberal, casual, comfortable Christianity that absolutely plagues us in the United States. Where we would actually bow and respect and stand in awe of Jesus. That kind of liberal, everything's okay, we're going to redefine the Bible, we're going to reinterpret the Bible, we're going to do all that stuff. That is false faith that cares nothing about God, nor respects Him, or has any awe of Him. It bears no fruit. It's popular, but it bears no fruit. It has no salvation to work out, and it's not real. Jesus never calls us to be comfortable. He calls us to work out our salvation, even if it costs us something here. To quote the famous theologian Martin Luther, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. So I would implore you to go and strive for stronger obedience to Christ. Pray for a greater appreciation of the cross. Stand in awe of your creator, your author and perfecter of your salvation. Work and work hard. Put your faith into action. Right? Push yourself to love when you feel like you should be angry. To be honest with people whenever it might cost you something. To speak kindly whenever you're irritated. To be selfless when you'd rather not. To give up whatever it is in your life that God says dishonors his name and does not glorify him. And continue to hold out the word of life to people. Hold it firmly and offer it to the world. Be a disciple. Be disciplined in following Christ. Stand militant in Christ. Stand defiant against the world and whatever they may tell you to think or may tell you to change about what you believe. And, and don't, we're not just fighting against the world. We're warring against ourselves. War against your own desires in order to exchange them for God's. And do all of this from the all-inspiring love of God that was revealed to us on the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. We deserve hell, and you give us Christ. We don't deserve food, and you give us food. We don't deserve breath, and you give us air. We deserve nothing but damnation because we are sinners, and you give us everything. Thank you. God, I pray that we would, we would respond to that kind of love and obedience and put to death whatever it is that you want us to put to death that does not bring you glory, that we would stand for your truth in a world that tells us to shut up and that we would do it all lovingly, and we would do it with love for you and love for other people because we know that to love you is to love our neighbor. God, we know that you're sovereign over everything, and we trust in that. Make the gospel real to us so that we would love you more. And I know you're good to answer those prayers with yes because it brings you glory. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.